I'd like to share just a couple of passages of scripture with you. First of all, from the book of Genesis. Uh, God has come from heaven and brought a couple of angels with him to visit his son Abraham, who was to be the father of the church. And of course, uh, evil was rampant in that day, indeed, as it is today. And uh, uh, the church was, uh, uh, or the the nation was in deep jeopardy at that time. And uh, uh, there was to be judgment to fall upon it at that time. But God comes and he visits with Abraham. Of course, that's when he delivers the news that Sarah is going to be with child. And it says that when the men got up to leave, that is with God and the angels accompanying him, they looked down towards Sodom. And we know the evil that existed there. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he can direct his children, his household, and others who come after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. And then I'd like to go to Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Matthew as he gets, he begins, he's just gone through the Beatitudes and now he is saying that uh, we are salt and light and I want to pick up with the light part there. 14, it says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. You, followers, believers, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise, praise your Father in heaven. Father, I would ask that you would, you would direct our thoughts now, please. I believe you have led me. And so let me be faithful to what you've given. Let us have open hearts and open minds to receive. And then may we accept the challenge that you lay before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, I have a few passions. Uh, My first passion is my Lord. But my second passion, of course, is, is my country. Of course, my third passion, my wife, but I don't want her to know that. Uh, I, I realized uh, Friday as I, I, I looked at the patriotic days. Days have been sanctioned by our United States government. Uh, they have passed, uh, passed uh, 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 federal muster that there are eight patriotic days that, that we honor in this nation of ours. And four of them... Uh, excuse me, five of them are just within a 60-day period here. Uh, we have uh, Memorial Day, which we've already celebrated. The 4th of July, Independence Day, that's coming up. Uh, Loyalty Day. How many people know what Loyalty Day is? That's on the f- uh, fame. It's just a day when we remember those 
Remember those who, those over 3,000 that were killed at 9-11, you see, in New York. That's, that's an official day of remembrance in the United States. We have Flag Day on the 14th, and uh, we've just had D-Day pass. That was, of course, the invasion of Normandy that, that was the initial battle to set Europe free uh, from the bodies that it was under. And so... In all of these, you see, there is an opportunity and a responsibility and a privilege to be thankful for this great nation of ours. And I'm, I'm concerned that we don't always uh, take advantage of the privileges and the opportunities that are presented to us. Well, we're looking on Jesus as recorded in Matthew there. He and his disciples uh, have made a change in plans now. They've been ministering down south of Jericho. Uh, they have been on the edge of the Dead Sea, which is 1,200 feet below sea level. And now they turn, they begin to go north uh, toward Jerusalem because the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is about to begin. And so they begin this arduous climb from 2,500 uh, feet below uh, sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level. And... Uh, uh, they are on their way to Jerusalem to join in this celebration. As they approach the city, this climbing ceases and they descend once again into the valley of Hinnon. Now they can't see very much because they're passing through the trees and there are, are large groves of fig trees there at that particular time. But suddenly they burst out of the trees there into the valley of Hinnon and then they look up, and there is the city of Jerusalem uh, there before them. It is sparkling there in the bright sunshine of a cloudless day, because those are the kinds of days they had there in, in Jerusalem. And their hearts begin to beat as they saw this shining light, this city on a hill there before them. This is a picture that Christ has painted and in that scripture that I read to you, uh, there's a great symbolism that exists within that picture. Because it says that you are the light of the world. Not me. Not you. Not you. But all of us who are believers and followers of Christ are the light of the world. And then we are, we are related to and similar to that picture of that city of Jerusalem that these, these disciples in Christ have witnessed as they, as they stepped out of the tree line into the openness of the valley of Hinnon, a city on a hill. Matthew said, you are the light of the world. As a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So we need to keep that coupling in our minds as we, as we continue to share together. Uh, to Jesus' audience who was listening to him speak. They knew exactly what he was talking about because there had been a promise made by God uh, to Abraham that there would always be one of his descendants on the throne in Jerusalem. And in the reference that he makes to this, he says that one will be a lamp in Jerusalem, the city of David. And so they were... They were or able to make this connection and to be able to make this equation between what Jerusalem was standing for and what they as individuals need to stand for. This metaphor belonged to Jerusalem. 
until about the 17th century. Whenever one would mention a city on the hill, they would think of Jerusalem. But today, that has changed beginning in the 17th century. In 1620, a ship, the Arbella, anchored off the shores of what is now the city of Boston. It was a boatload of Puritans coming seeking spiritual freedom and, and political freedom. There were about 900 people that were on this boat. They were under the leadership of a man whose name is John Winthrop. Uh, an interesting young man, not very big, kind of slim build, but brilliant and articulate. He was a, an attorney, and he had joined their company, and, and even before they had arrived there at their destination, they had elected him to be the governor of this of this. Uh, uh, metropolis that they were to establish, uh, the Massachusetts colony. And, and so it was that, that uh, as they were waiting to disembark from the Arabella, uh, he also, their spiritual leader, because it turns out this brilliant young man is, is a pastor as well, he prepares a sermon to preach to the people. Uh, we have this in, in its entirety. It's called A Model of Christian Charity. And the intention of this message that he was to preach to his, uh, his flock was this, that if uh, of the necessity of maintaining adherence to, to biblical precepts, that that whatever they did there, individually and corporately, it was to be following biblical precepts. A second thing he was speaking to them in his message was that there was to be a call to virtue. Uh, it was very important that this would be a testimony before the community, before the world at large. That whatever effort, uh, compassion, sharing, helping they did. It would be none in the name of the Lord to his honor and for his glory. They were to work together as a community, take whatever skills and abilities they had, that collectively they would see to the needs of all people. And of course he urged them also in companionship and, and selflessness as far as their lives were concerned. Now in the middle of this sermon that he is has written and which he preached to his people, there is a passage reminding this early community of, of Christian Americans that they were first of all to have their allegiance to God, that, that they were to, to serve God in this society that they were establishing. And then he went on to say to them that we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. Isn't it interesting that, that as you survey history, going all the way back to this time of 1620, that the eyes of the world have been on America from that time. And indeed, people were watching what these Puritans would do, what kind of a, of a, a political uh, organization they would set up, uh, how they would conduct themselves as they related to one another and to the community at large. And so from that day to this, the eyes of the world upon this great nation of ours. Uh, they, he, he went on to, to encourage them that, uh, that they would be successful only as they predicated their efforts upon this relationship with God. Well, as we contemplate what he said to those people, and this sermon of his, uh, Winthrop wasn't just speculating, 
because they were indeed under the microscope of the world. And America, of course, has remained there as well. But what is interesting about this metaphor, calling them a, a, a light on a hill or a city upon a hill, what is interesting about that is that that has now become a part of the designation of what this great nation of ours is all about. This metaphor entered into our language and a part of our history 383 years ago and it continues to be a description of who this nation is and what this nation is really all about. Two of our former presidents have, have perpetuated this picture. John F. Kennedy on a number of occasions and speeches that he wrote uh, called America a Sidney Hill. Uh, that was followed, of course, uh, by Ronald Reagan as well, as he would speak about America. Well, what is interesting is, as I have carefully looked at this, that uh, nowhere have I found a modicum of ev evidence, not a minuscule indication, uh, not a hint of probability that God has revoked our spiritual charter. That that charter that was issued to those people in that day is as viable today as it was then. As a nation, we are under divine appointment to perpetuate the Christian faith. And as it reminds us and charges us in Matthew 28, we are to go and we are to make disciples that's what America is, and that's what America is supposed to be. As we survey the political and spiritual landscape, I don't think that any believer can deny that we are a nation that's in difficulty. That indeed we have slipped our moorings. That uh, not paying attention, we've drifted out of the safety of our harbor. And that we find ourselves today in treacherous waters. That we find ourselves in danger. And of course, then this raises the question, what can we do? What should we do? What I'd like to do is try to answer that question with a few examples from our history. From about this time that, that, the, that the Puritans came in 1630, over the next hundred years, uh, America was really a, a Wild West kind of a, of a society at that particular time time. Uh, the spirit, Americans were free-willed, fiercely independent, very loosely organ, organized, and morally corrupt. And, and so this is what existed over a period of time. But this little enclave there in New England was growing and developing and enlarging spiritually. And so it was that, that the pastors talked and, and, and the pastors decided that what they needed to do was to pray about a change in America. And so they came together in what they called a concert of prayer. A monthly prayer gathering which went across denominations. Uh, people everywhere began to pray for this great nation of ours. Well, as we know, as you read the historical record, uh, God indeed uh, blessed this great nation. That was called the Great Awakening. And during this uh, time of about 20 years from 1735 to 1755, the Spirit of God just moved mightily in the great 
nation that we live in today. And dramatic change occurred. I read one place where 50,000 members were added to the churches in New England just alone at this particular time. But more importantly is hearts and attitudes and character changed and, and there was unanimity as we have never seen before. Prior to the revival, uh, there, were little, there was little connection and cooperation that existed between the colonies. As this spirit, this phenomenon began to unfold, the colonies began to come together socially, spiritually, and economically. And the entire area began to prosper significantly. And as a result, as one writer writes it and puts it, this new this new uh, season of unity eventually developed into what we recognize today as the American spirit. But more importantly, out of this unity that developed because of the spiritual growth came our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Well, a spiritual drought set in after that. And this went on for a period of about... Uh, 50 years of, and it was about the last half of the 18th century. Drunkenness was rampant. Uh, it was uh, it was a it was it was terrible. Out of five million people, uh, someone estimated that there were 300,000 certified alcoholics in in that uh, in that population. Uh, once again, the call went out for a resurgence of prayer. And so beginning in the year 1795 approximately, once again there was instituted a prayer concert beginning with the pastors across denominations and then the churches involved and began to, to just wash throughout the in, entire nation. And we know that just dramatic things happen from the history book. In New England, the numbers again spiraled uh, in believers. Went down into Kentucky. I, I read that in Kentucky uh, that uh, the word went out that there was to be a, a communion service and 11,000 people responded. Now that's a lot of grape juice, isn't it? And uh, wasn't, that a wonderful, wasn't that a wonderful thing? But it created a climate of human respect from which there came, at this time now, the Emancipation Proclamation. God saw the need. He sent the Spirit. And the Spirit sets the tone, allowing our nation to move forward. 30 years passed after that until the next reunion uh, uh, revival took place. And this was only for beginning in the year 1857. It only lasted just for a couple of years. But it swept throughout uh, the New England area, particularly the city of New York. There was a man uh, whose name was Jeremiah Lampier. And he was disturbed uh, about, the, about the spiritual culture in the city of New York which was a large metropolitan area even then. And so he went to prayer. And then others joined with him. And, and just in a couple of years, a dramatic change took place in the lives and the attitudes of the people who lived there in New York City. Time moved along into the 20th century. And in the year 1904, again, revival began 
Interestingly, it began overseas in Wales, and then it moved throughout Western Europe, and then it jumped the Atlantic Ocean, and it touched the lives of people in South America as well as the North American continent, just in, in the period of a, of a couple of years. Uh, an example of what was dramatically happening then, I read that in the city of Atlantic City, there were 60,000 citizens, and that virtually every one of them became born-again believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of this again came the spiritual unity that bonded people together, allowing God to move effectively. And of course, this was the prelude to World War I, where we became the defenders of the liberties of other people. The United States, I, I feel and I am afraid, is at a spiritual and moral crossroads. The moral fabric of our nation is steadily unraveling and I don't have to run you a litany of some of our woes. Our government at every level is increasingly hostile to the role of faith in civic and political affairs and we witness this on a daily basis. Indeed we have slipped our moorings. Indeed we have drifted away from the safety of our assigned anchorage and find ourselves in treacherous waters. I raise that question, what can be done? And I think history has answered it quite well for us. Let me see if I can summarize it for you in just three quick thoughts. The first of those, of course, is to make sure that you, you as an individual, are right with God. That's the most important thing before we can do anything. In Jeremiah, we read these words. It says that God said, Call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. For you will seek me and find me when you seek with all of your heart. Isn't that a wonderful promise for us to hang on to? But the first thing we need to do is to make sure that we are committed and are right and appropriate. There isn't a part-time Christian. There are no step Christians. It's not in, in our, uh, our blood, you see. It's, we must become as individuals related to him. The second thing I would encourage you is to know America's history and God's will and ways. And how do we do that? We, we read it and we study it and we see what the Bible has to say about these things. And, and when we begin to understand God's expectations of us and what we can do for him and in his name. Well, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, we are to carefully obey his words. And then a little later on down it says, we are to walk in his ways. And then even further down in that same chapter, it says that we are to teach these things to our children. President Ronald Reagan wrote these words, freedom. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Chew on that for a moment or two. We don't pass it on to our children in our bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, and I can picture myself right now in this one, one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and grandchildren what it once was like in the United States when we were free. 
The third thing I would encourage you to do, and of course perhaps one of the most important things, is to pray. To pray, to pray, and to pray some more. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, and somebody's thinking, Oh, I knew he was gonna trot that one out. But it's a marvelous pattern for us that God has given to us to, to follow in order to be able to accomplish the impossible. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then, he says, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and then I will heal their land. We have not lost America, but we are certainly on a slippery slope as far as its viability. So I encourage you to enjoy me as I wave my flag in prayer for this great nation of ours. Our destiny has not been concluded. We are on the verge of a renaissance. America is still a city on a hill, a light into the path, a lamp unto the feet of all who seek religious, political, spiritual, relational freedom. We must not fail them, for it's in Christ alone that we attain victory, that we find light. Father, we thank you. We thank you for those who have gone before, who have set the pattern who have walked the walk and not so much talked the talk as much as having lived it out. And so we pray that you will challenge us to step out individually, collectively, as a nation to honor Christ. Amen. <laughs>